I wanted to talk today about some mindfulness basics. And what inspired it was a meditation I had, if you can call it that, this last week. I was meditating and I realized that I wasn't really meditating. I mean, I was sitting on a cushion with my cat, but meditation wasn't really happening. The mind was wandering and I wasn't really encouraging it to come back. I was actually enjoying it, just wandering, letting it wander off. And I wasn't putting a lot of energy or effort in and I, I just wasn't very clear headed or clear intended. And I realized in the meditation that it was happening. And so I reoriented and began to put some intention into my attention. And immediately the meditation became a different experience, of course. And that contrast reminded me how easy it is to forget about the basics of practice when we're sitting. It is so easy to get lost in what is sometimes referred to as sinking mind or delusion mind, where the mind kind of just falls into a, maybe a hazy state. Maybe it's pleasurable. Maybe there's a sense of oneness. Maybe you lose sense of the body, but but you're really just sort of giving over to kind of the energy of the moment, but there's not a lot of intention, not a lot of attention. And it's very easy to fall into these kind of states and let your mind kind of get swept away, so to speak. And that often happens, uh, it happens to all of us, but it often happens when we've sort of forgotten about our center. We've forgotten the cornerstones of what we've been invited to do moment to moment with our practice. And since the last few weeks, we've been talking about engaged Dharma, which is such an externalized direction for our energies. I wanted to bring us back to center. I don't know about you all. So, so show of hands, how many of you find it really easy without any effort, without any higher education or training that your life can come become out of balance or you can become off center without any effort at all, without any intention right? No practice, right? You don't need to do it 20 times a day. It just happens automatically. It's so easy to be swept away by the world. Um, and if it wasn't so easy to do that, we wouldn't need to meditate. So I just want to remind ourselves that it's so easy to get lost in the loudness of living. Living is so loud. There's so much loudness in life. Um, the other day I was reading and I had my window open and there were several power tools of sort going on and the loudness of spring that can come with with this kind of thing and there was that reflection on living is is a loud experience when we're out in the world right we have families friends kids careers mortgages you know we're trying to do this and that and checklist of things to do and it's just so easy to wake up and feel centered to feel secure, perhaps comfortable, well-intended, and half the day goes by and you don't even remember what's going on because you're being pulled along by the riptide of the noise and the frenetic energy of existence. So it's so easy to be pulled along with that, to be uncentered and out of balance and just out of kilter. And because of that, I think it's important to remind ourselves of the cornerstones of meditation and the, the types of things we need to pay attention to to keep ourselves on track. Now, most of you uh, who've heard my Dharma talks know that I like to emphasize the seven factors of awakening 
as things to focus on, to really pay attention to the hindrances when they arise. Continuity of practice is a big thing. But there are three qualities that the Buddha talks about that are fundamental to every moment of meditation, no matter what you're practicing. There are three fundamental qualities that exist in our Vipassana practice that the Buddha mentions. And I wanted to remind us of these today. And I'm going to read from the Satipatthana here. Let's see. Now, the Satipatthana Sutta, as many of you know, is the description of Vipassana practice. It gives the instructions for meditation, the traditional classical instructions for meditation. And I wanted to read the first, let's see, four or five, six lines here, which you'll be familiar with them because I've read them before, but I wanted to pay particular attention here. So the first paragraph goes like this. Monks. This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for acquiring the true method for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four Satipatthanas. What are the four? Here, monks, in regard to the body, a monk abides contemplating the body, ardent, alert, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. Ardent, alert, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. These three words, ardent, alert, and mindful, are used specifically. They're not arbitrary. And if you ever pick up a book on the Sai Patana Sutta, there'll be chapters on each one of these words. Because these three words, alertness, ardency, and mindfulness, are three qualities that are the cornerstone of our meditation practice. Whenever we're meditating, moment to moment, the Buddha encourages us to be mindful, alert, and ardent. And I wanted to talk about what the Buddha means by these three words. I mean, this is like six lines into a whole sutta, and right there... There are these qualities that we're already being asked to take into consideration. And when I talk about them, it won't, it won't seem new to you. We, we do these all the time, oftentimes without thinking. But being intentional about them really transforms the practice and allows us to get out of that sinking mind, that mind where we just kind of let things go and we're not quite sure if we're steering, if the hindrances are steering, if the world is steering, and we're sort of off course. I was asking myself when I was reflecting on it, why are these three qualities so important? And then I remembered, I remembered Goenkaji, my first teacher, in one of his discourses in a 10-day retreat, I think the second or third day, he, he says something to this effect. He says, when you first learn to meditate, one of the most enlightening and simultaneously disconcerting things is that you begin to realize as you turn inward how chaotic the mind is, how out of control the mind is. The Buddha refers to the mind like a, as a wild elephant or a monkey, as many of you know, and or some wild animal, depending on the sutta. And so Goenka says, you know, as a meditator, when you first learn to meditate, when you first turn inward, you're expecting peace and bliss and serenity and lights and whatever psychic abilities and god knows what else and instead you get chaos you get 
emotions rising and passing away. You're trying to get the mind to be stable and it's running into the future and it's running into the past. You're getting agitated and your knee hurts and there's an itch here and the temperature is not okay. And you keep thinking the teacher has forgotten to ring the bell. And certainly they've forgotten to ring the bell because you're ready to be done with meditation. And you don't find peace when you go inside, especially those first few times. What you find is a mind where no one's in control. It's just doing its thing. Moods are arising and passing away. You don't have any control. Some thought train comes by and before you know it, you've hopped on it and you're thinking about something someone said to you last week or you're fantasizing about something that might happen and creating worry for yourself. There's no control. Completely chaotic. Emotional roller coaster, up and down, moment to moment. And on top of this, Many of us expect to find some type of clarity or wisdom, but instead, it's kind of muddy in there. We bring our awareness inside, and it's kind of cloudy. There isn't any clarity. And so this fact of clarity and <laughs> this fact of lack of clarity and chaos that exists in the mind is why we need to add mindfulness, ardency, and alertness to the mix so we can get stable, so we can find a place in our inner world, where we can get a foothold, where we can start to explore what is really going on here. And because of that chaos and the frenetic energy and the speed that thoughts and emotions are running around and dragging us here and dragging us there, it's because of that chaotic energy that we need to establish a foothold. We need to put down, sort of stake our claim in the present moment so we can gain some inner perspective. And in order to do that, we have to establish some mindfulness, we have to establish some alertness, and we have to establish ardency. When we establish these qualities, what we begin to see is that we can establish a stable mental-emotional space where we can kind of rest, where we can take a kind of refuge. It's almost like, well, Robert has said before, building a hammock in the present moment, a place where we can fall back and lean into so we can be safe, secure, stable, and attentive. So we can really take a look at this chaos and say, can I find a way of looking at all of this stuff that's going on and have some autonomy, some agency, some transformation in my life? Can I look in the present moment and can I get a foothold? Can I put my hands on the steering wheel and direct some of this traffic in a way that will lead me to have some love, some compassion, some joy, some tranquility? So these qualities allow us to get a foothold in the present moment and do the work of Vipassana, these three qualities. So I want to go into the three qualities so you can see why they're so important and so easy to forget. The main thing here, the take home tonight is how easy it is to forget these things. I've been doing this for 25 years and I still sit and completely forget about all three of these and have to remind myself to come back to establishing these qualities to keep my meditation on track. So mindfulness, this one we know quite well, quite well. Mindfulness, mindfulness, mindfulness. The reason we have to remember to be mindful, and this is, I always find funny and amusing, is because the mind doesn't want to be mindful. If mindfulness was easy and the mind wanted to be present, we wouldn't have to remind ourselves to be present. The fact is we train our mind to seek pleasure outside itself. We train the mind and we reward the mind for seeking pleasure in the future, in the past, in fantasy, in craving, 
and anticipation of something that we want or desire, we train the mind to go elsewhere. So when we invite it to be present, it's not really that interested. I always like to think of it like inviting a friend over. If you invite a friend over to watch a movie or take some intoxicant or listen to some music or play a game or go on a hike or go on a trip, that friend is more than willing to come along for the ride. But if you invite a friend over to sit, not talk, and be mindful of their breathing, not much of invitation. The mind really doesn't want to sit there and do that, especially in the beginning of practice. Over time, the mind begins to enjoy it. But in the beginning stages of practice, the mind simply has no motivation, no incentive, or no history of understanding why you would invite it to come be aware of body breathing. It has no framework for understanding that. So we have to remember to be intentionally mindful because the minute we lose that intentionality, the mind is going to run off and play somewhere else. It's going to hitch a ride on a thought train. It's going to hitch a ride on some emotional roller coaster. It's going to look into maybe feeling a little averse or a little angry or a little greedy, a little worried about something. Minds love to worry. You give the mind an opportunity to be away from breath. It's going to find that bus that goes to worry and regret, and it's going to take a tour. It's going to fantasize about the future. It's going to go anywhere but the in-breath, out-breath, and the space in between. So mindfulness, we always have to remember that mindfulness takes practice, takes intention, and it takes repetition so we can remember to do it. That's the mindfulness quality here that the Buddha is mentioning in the Satipatthana. Reminding the mind to be present because its natural tendency is to be elsewhere. Another aspect of mindfulness is that if you can establish continuous mindfulness, it will give you two things that are really important. And they are the foundations of any other experience you have in meditation. One is it will slow the mind down and allow you to see things arising and passing away, particularly the causes of your suffering. That's what we're really looking for. It slows down that energy so we can see clearly the cause of suffering. That's really the ultimate seeing that we're talking about. And continuous mindfulness brings pleasure. It brings our tranquility and our joy factors. And with continuous mindfulness, the present moment can be quite euphoric, quite restful, quite soothing and ease and create a sense of real relaxation for the body and for the mind. So mindfulness, when those are established, really gives us a home base, as we call it. It gives us a home base where we can really begin to explore the present moment. Without remembering to establish that mindfulness, the mind is going to get swept away, as mine had did, just swept away downstream, and there it goes. You can watch it. Very easy to see as it goes on some other ride other than the present moment. The next quality that the Buddha speaks of is called alertness. Alertness. Sometimes this word, you'll hear this word translated as clearly knowing or clearly seeing. Mindfulness is being present. Alertness is paying attention to what's happening in that presence with a clear, alert mind. Alert. Attentive and alert. Think of it like driving a car. There's those times when you're driving the car. You know you're driving the car, so you're present, but you're not too alert, and all of a sudden stoplight comes or someone jumps out into traffic or the car in front of you slams on its brakes and all of a sudden alertness turns on. That alertness to the present moment. Alertness 
is really key to being able to have a deeper experience of mindfulness. Mindfulness is great, but without alertness being turned on, we can't see a whole heck of a lot. Alertness invites us to watch what's going on in mindfulness. It asks us to look and see what's arising, what's passing away, and what the mind's doing with all of that. So in guided meditation, for example, when a teacher says something like, be aware of aversion, or be aware of some discomfort, and then follows that by saying, how are you responding to that discomfort, right? Are you craving it to end? Are you desiring it to leave? Are you saying to yourself, I'm not good enough? In the present moment, we wanna be aware of what's arising and passing away, but we wanna watch and see what the mind is actually doing. If the mind rolls into the future, why is it going there? Is there something in that future fantasy that's more pleasurable than the present moment? If the mind is rolling into the past, can we bring alertness to see why it's wandering there? What is it seeking in the past, in this moment? Why is the present not good enough? So alertness is our attuning to where the mind is going and asking ourselves, why is it going there? Why is it rolling here? Why is it wandering there? Why is it taking bus number 47 instead of bus number 52? Why is it going to regret versus anger or expansion versus contraction? We can be mindful, but have a dull alertness. We can be aware that something's going on, but we might not have the alertness factor turned up enough to really see clearly. So we practice bringing energy into the present moment where we can really be alert to all the details of what is arising and passing away. And there's a, there's a list that the Buddha gives on what things we should be alert to in any of our meditation practices. So the first thing that we can be alert to is what is enticing the mind to go away, which I like to call the allure. What is luring the mind away from the breath? That's one thing we can be aware of. Similarly, we can be aware of the spark. What is that spark that first sends the mind off the breath? Here I am breathing, I've been with four or five breaths, it feels really good, and boom, my mind runs away. What just happened there? I mean, it was comfortable, I just had two or three really deep, mindful breaths. It seemed comfortable, the mind seemed content, and there's a spark. Something happens and the mind leaps somewhere else. It jumps into something. Or it builds slowly and you start feeling this kindling and you can tell the mind is starting to get distracted. Being present, being alert to that spark is really important. Because as mindfulness develops, you'll be able to see that spark clearer and clearer and you'll be able to intervene but you have to notice it with alertness before you can gain the skill to be able to keep the mind present. So we look for two things. What's luring the mind and what is that initial spark that causes it to be discontent with what is arising and passing in the present moment? Another thing you can be alert to, and this may take, make time, for most people it takes time to get to this, but I think it's, it's well worth mentioning. Another thing that you can be alert to is finding the place that you can intervene. 
you want to be alert to the movement of the mind so you can find a place where you can gently bring it back. You want to find the place where you can intervene. And the quicker you can intervene, the less wandering there is. So if you can catch the mind right as it starts getting restless or bored, if you start noticing boredom arising before it's fully blown, right, as it's fully manifest, you can say, hey, hey, come back, come back to the breath. We're just going to stay here right now. I feel that there's some boredom arising, but we're going to catch it. We're going to catch it. I'm going to intervene here and bring the mind gently back to the present moment before it strays too far. Before it strays too far. So we can be aware of the allure, the initial spark, and we can, we can notice clearly where might I be able to encourage the mind to come back. At what point can I intervene, can I step in and bring the mind back to presence? Now, the last thing that the Buddha encourages us to be alert to are the famous three characteristics or three perceptions. And we're all familiar with these for the most part, which is impermanence, dukkha, stress or suffering, and anatta, not self. This is something that can be kept in mind in any meditation at any given moment, all moments. You can always be alert and be aware of the fact that everything that arises in consciousness passes away. Every itch passes away. Every noise passes away. Every feeling, every emotion, every twitch, every sensation, every little thing in awareness arises and passes away. Everything that comes into being eventually goes out of being. And we can be aware of this impermanence and we can really see the impermanent changing phenomenon that is the heart and the mind. Dukkha is another thing we can be alert to, the suffering. This is one thing that takes practice. Moment to moment, one of the best questions you can ask yourself, especially if the mind begins to wander, is where is the suffering? When there is wandering mind, there is suffering. This, the wandering mind is the manifestation of the suffering. When the mind is content and at ease, it doesn't wander. When there is wandering, there is dukkha. So any moment in your meditation, when that mind begins to wander, you can ask yourself, huh, what's going on here? Why am I not comfortable? Where is the discontent? Where is the stress or the dis-ease, the unsatisfactoriness, the distraction? Where is the suffering? Dukkha, suffering. So in our meditation, moment to moment, we can look for the impermanent nature of things, or we can be alert to the fact of suffering. The last thing that the Buddha encourages us to be alert to is anatta, which means not self. It does not mean no self, by the way. It means not self, which means when we go in and bring awareness to this heart-mind process, the Buddha's claim is you will not find anything solid. You will not find a solid I, which the Buddha calls I-making or my-making. You can spend a lifetime in awareness. You won't find anything solid. Everything in there is impermanent and changing, even our sense of identity. That is another thing we can be alert to. When you watch those emotions arise and pass away, when you watch thoughts rapidly fire off in this direction and that direction, can you bring alertness to the fact that none of that is essentially you? 
Are you any one of those thoughts? Are you any one of those moods? None of it is solid. And to clarify, anatta is just anicca applied to self. It's just everything is impermanent. Not only the emotion, but the sense that you own that emotion, that I'm angry. Is it that you're angry or is anger arising in awareness? Impermanence, suffering, anatta, not self, or impermanent self. So all of these things are avenues for alertness. At any given moment in meditation, we want to remember to invite mindfulness in with mindfulness of an object, such as breathing. We can then be alert to the rising and passing away of breath, the arising and passing away of emotions. The mind jumps to the future. Oh, I'll catch it. There's the spark. Let me be alert to that. Oh, the mind's going over here. Oh, let me be attentive and alert to what lured me into that situation. Why am I fantasizing about something that happened in elementary school or something that happened last week with my boss? What's unresolved there? What's that lure? So moment to moment, you can be alert to so many things. And it is so easy. In fact, it's effortless to be unalert to everything. Alert, if you don't put any intention to it, it's easy to have a foggy mind. It's easy for that mindfulness to be unclear. It's very easy to be swept away by anything. Alertness and mindfulness work together. The more alert you can be to what is arising and passing away, the more the mind will want to stay in the present moment. So mindfulness is the initial invitation. Alertness helps the mind to stay there. It gives it something to look at and look for and watch. It gives you a sort of movie or a script to follow as you're moving moment to moment. So mindfulness and alertness are the cornerstones of Vipassana practice, which is why they're in the Sai Patana so early on. The last quality the Buddha encourages is called ardency. I never use this word outside of the Dharma. Even in the Dharma, it's, um, it's, it's sort of foreign to me, uh, the word ardency. The word ardency uh, in common speak, so to speak, is enthusiasm or passion, right? An ardent learner or an ardent camper or ardent rock climber. Someone who's passionate about something. Someone who has passion and enthusiasm for something. The Buddha encourages passion here. Ardency, alertness, and mindfulness. Now, ardency in the Dharma is a little, little interesting, and it has two or three sort of dimensions to it that I wanted to mention. So the first passion, so to speak, the first enthusiasm that the Buddha is talking about here when he says ardency is a passion or energy, if you will, to get out of suffering. There has to be a desire to get out of suffering for meditation to really work. Because meditation is hard work, right? Show of hands if meditation is just totally easy for you, right? It totally doesn't require any, any effort, no energy, no practice, right? Energy and effort, right? There has to be some passion for meditation. You have to really want to do it because otherwise sitting on a cushion every day, uh, it's not going to happen. You got to have some energy, some passion for this stuff. And what does the Buddha encourage? A passion for freedom, a passion for compassion, a passion for joy, a passion for wisdom, and connectivity and sangha, a passion for the Dharma, 
and its fruits. It's easy to forget about that passion, right? Because so much of what we do in meditation is passive. We forget that some desire is necessary for the Dharma to work. One of the most common things I hear meditators say, and I've said this 10,000 times, right, is I know I should be meditating, right? I know I should be meditating more or longer, or I wanted to meditate today here and there, and instead I turned on Netflix, right? Because the passion just wasn't there. The energy just wasn't there. Even though you knew and you wanted to stoke the fires of that intention to get to the cushion, you say to yourself, oh, I could meditate now, but I think I'm just going to watch TV or, or do something like that. So passion is really necessary. We have to have some desire for freedom, some energy. And the Buddha talks about that being skillful desire. Ardency is skillful passion for freedom from suffering. Another aspect of this is a passion to do the practice well. The Buddha says, if we really want to learn to meditate and get success in our practice, we have to have ardency, which means we need to want to do the practice well. It's kind of like learning an instrument. If you want to play guitar, even if you want to do it casually, right? You want to learn a few songs, you know, play out by a campfire, play at home with yourself, you know, you're by yourself and you just want to play just to enjoy, to learn an instrument. You're still going to have to have some ardency, some, some to desire to do it well. And sometimes we think that that kind of ardency is antithetical to meditation. That somehow if we just say we want to meditate, suddenly it will catch fire and the passion will arise and we'll be on the cushion and it'll all go well. But that's not how it works for meditators. We have to cultivate a sense of energy and desire to not only be free, but to a desire to learn to do the practice and to really do the practice well. The Buddha says that's a very skillful orientation. Like I mentioned earlier, the other day when my mind was just really wandering and I didn't really have ardency, it really struck me in that moment, I didn't really care so much about what the meditation was doing. I just wasn't, wasn't really interested. It, I didn't have a sense of like, oh, I'm going to go meditate and let's see what this meditation brings. I didn't have any ardency. And that absence of ardency resulted in a very foggy meditation that was just kind of all over the place. There's got to be a little bit of passion. Next time you're in a meditation and you're feeling foggy-headed, unclear, and you're feeling like, what am I doing? Ask yourself, where is my passion for freedom in this moment? Do I have some ardency that I can cultivate? Why am I sitting here? Am I doing this? What am I doing this for? Do I want to be free from suffering? You know, remind yourself of the goal. Remind yourself what's happened in the past when you've gone on the cushion and had a good meditation or a complete meditation. Bring some passion. Bring some energy. And remember, effort and energy is one of the enlightenment factors. It's part of the path. It takes practice to bring energy and effort to our meditations. Another way of looking at ardency is to ask this question. In this moment, what is most skillful? In this moment, what is most skillful? Ardency is about the passion to be free, the passion to put effort in, which leads to the passion to want to do the best in this moment. In this moment, what is the most skillful thing to plant seeds of my long-term happiness and well-being? So that last passion is about the, the present moment awareness 
asking itself, in this moment, how can I be free? That energy required to really ask that question sincerely. In this moment, is the most skillful thing to do to bring metta to my practice? In this moment, is the most skillful thing to breathe in a particular way? In this moment, is the most skillful thing to cultivate equanimity or compassion or wisdom? Moment to moment, moment to moment, we have an opportunity for awakening. But we need a passion to be free, a passion to do it well. And in the moment, we have to be energized enough to act. The last passion of ardency is the action. You need enough passion to act. And whatever that act is, ultimately, it can be summed up in the question, in this moment, how can I be free? In this moment, how can I be compassionate? In this moment, where is the suffering and what is the most skillful activity that I can do intentionally to free myself from suffering? With those three qualities, Vipassana practice springs. You can consider this to be sort of the soil, if you will, or the fertilizer of our practice. Mindfulness, ardency, alertness, all three are necessary moment to moment for any of our other tools and practices to take hold. We've got to be mindful of the present moment. We have to be alert to see where the mind is going and why it's going there. And then we must bring energy to then engage the present moment to look for the suffering, look for the impermanence, look for the not-self qualities, and then act on those qualities or on that situation. Mindfulness, ardency, and alertness. So those are the three qualities. It's been over a year since I've given a talk on these three qualities. Thought it would be good to bring it up today. It is so easy, as I said earlier, with all the engagement that we've been focusing on, and so many of us watching the news day to day and seeing all the intense energy that's going on, to forget about these three qualities. So I would invite you over the next week or so, before you sit down, just remember, my intention is to be mindful, awake, and aware. My intention is to be alert, to be clearly seeing what is arising and passing away in my heart and mind. And my intention is to cultivate passion to be free from suffering in this very sit. Watch what happens when you remind yourself of that. And definitely remind yourself when the mind is foggy and unclear and wandering here and there. Those are the best times to be able to remember these simple tools. Well, my friends, I would love to conclude with some metta. Thank you for coming tonight. This is joyous as always. I know it's a beautiful day out and that you're here just warms my heart. So thank you for coming. If you've not checked out the last few Dharma talks, please go to the podcast and listen to those. Um, Molly has put up the Donna Bowl. So after our meta, if you could give a few bucks, that would be great. Next week, Doyle's going to be sitting in. He's going to give a talk on the five powers. It's a great set of teachings. I really enjoy the subject a lot. And um, he's good at presenting it. So please welcome him next week when he is here. He'll be taking the lead. Uh, let's get comfortable and uh, let's wish well for all beings for a few minutes.
Let's begin our meta with a long, slow, deep breath in and out. In through the nose and out through the mouth. Bring awareness back to the body. We've been in our heads for 45 minutes. Let's return to embodied being. Breathing in, breathing out. Let's gladden our hearts and open our minds with this thought. In this moment, if you could have any wish, what would you wish for all beings? If you could gift anything to the world in this moment, and that gift would certainly be received, what would it be? What gladness would you like to invite into the world? What ease, what freedom, what grace? If you could bring anything into the world in this moment, what would it be? What wish would you offer the world? Let us remember that those who create or cause suffering for others are suffering themselves. And if they were to be freed from suffering, the suffering caused to others would also be released. When you look out upon the world and you see the harm that is being caused, by minds filled with greed and aversion, hatred and delusion, aggression and violence. Knowing that those hearts are capable of being free from suffering, knowing that their freedom would mean less harm to others, Can you be present to that truth enough to wish them well? Can we wish those that are harming freedom from suffering? Can we wish those who are harming others because they do not feel loved, they do not feel heard, they have not reconciled their own traumas, can we wish them well, knowing that their freedom will result in the freedom of everyone? What might you wish for those causing harm? 
Here you find a soft space within a centered place where that wish could be made that those who do harm could truly be awakened to their own suffering and in that awakening stop the harm that always spreads to others. What might you wish for them? The challenge of suffering is that it's contagious. Suffering of one becomes suffering of many. Suffering of many becomes suffering for all. Let us remind ourselves that we have the capacity to awaken, that we have the capacity for love and joy and wisdom. Let us wish that joy, that love, that freedom out into the world. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings be forgiven for harm that's been caused knowingly and unknowingly. May all beings be forgiven for harm that has been caused knowingly and unknowingly. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings be safe and secure. May all beings be given access to the possibility of grace and ease in this lifetime. May all beings share in the merits of our practice as we come together in Sangha to cultivate mindfulness alertness and ardency so we can be free, so we can be loving, so we can be joyful. Let us take this compassion and joy and wisdom and show up in the world every moment as wise, loving beings. May all beings share in this aspiration. May all beings be free from suffering in this lifetime. May all beings be liberated in this life. Thanks, everyone, for joining us in Sangha. Delightful, as always. I'll miss you next week, but I'll be here the week after. Take care of yourselves. Thanks for coming.